what like it's the only time we ever use roman numerals ever in our lives why are we still doing this hot take hey there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is february 9th 2021 i'm sarah ziegler the sports editor here at 538 Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. All right. From Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. I thought I was going to catch you right as you were taking a sip of your coffee. You did catch me. <laughs> and I powered through. It was a fast a fast sip. We all should have uh, drank at the same time. That would have been fun. Um, exciting announcement. Hot Takedown is now no longer only a podcast. We are a multimedia property. Whoa. Which is, I know. It's, that's just to say that new episodes of the show will now be available on 538's YouTube channel, as well as your podcast app of choice. We're not recording any videos. Oh, so good. There isn't, uh, that was know. my next question. I know. <laughs> there, there's nothing to like see, but if you like uh, like getting your podcast on YouTube, you, you can do that now. There's just there's just not us. There's no our our faces aren't there, but our voices. Is that the direction there. we're heading? Because that's going to change my, you know. No, it won't change anything. I'll still be in my car. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like that was threatened at one point that we'd be doing video too. And we have, uh, <laughs> I like so how you far... classify that as a threat. <laughs> yeah. People are just dying to see Neil's hats, which That's incidentally, incidentally, no hat today. Hatless. So that, that would be a letdown. Yeah. Um, and the inside of my car. That's that's what the people want for sure. But you should check out 538's channel on YouTube. There's a lot of actual cool videos and interviews and podcasts and stuff there. And now and now there's also us. So very exciting. Um, another very important bit of business up top. <clears throat> we need to conclude our NFL survivor pool. After all of the agonizing over who would get to pick whom and how the other rules would go. I won with like the most hollow of all hollow picks. <laughs> I like realized Why that. Why was it during... hollow? Because I didn't want them. I didn't want to pick them. I was mad that I couldn't pick Kansas City. So winning is, it feels very cheap considering they weren't my first pick. So wait, you would rather have picked KC and lost? Than to never have picked at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I just felt like it was funny after all of that, like, both of us, either one of us would have been better if we had just picked second. And really, if you think about it, I won because the pick that got was such a source of humor from earlier in the year where I picked the Bucks. <laughs> That's just, true. I was just, you know. What, you were ahead of the curve. 14 weeks too early. But I saw the future. I'm a clairvoyant. Right. Yeah. I knew the power of this team. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I just got my weeks wrong. That's it. Sure. No, that's that makes total sense. I buy that it. makes absolute sense. That makes Jeff. Full, Jeff is the real winner. Not a, there's no holes in that argument, Sarah. You have to admit that. <laughs> None whatsoever. I think we can all admit that. Actually, we were the real winners for getting to laugh at you for that pick this whole season. It was the pick that kept on making us laugh. So that was really nice. So thank you. Appreciate that. 
All right. On today's show, we are talking about what else? Super Bowl 55. We'll discuss the game itself, what went wrong for the Kansas City Chiefs. Then we'll talk about what the Buccaneers win means for Tom Brady's legacy and all future GOAT discourse on the internet. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Super Bowl Sunday has come and gone, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers denied the usually unstoppable Kansas City Chiefs a single touchdown on the way to their 31-9 win. This was the second Super Bowl win in Tampa Bay franchise history. The last time the Bucs got the Lombardi Trophy was in 2003. Also, side note, two women on the Bucs staff, assistant strength coach Moral Java Defar and assistant defensive line coach Lori Locust, became the first two female coaches to earn Super Bowl rings. And, of course, it was also quarterback Tom Brady's seventh Super Bowl win. He won the MVP for the fifth time as well, because why not? But Super Bowl 55 was pretty awful for the Chiefs, who managed to score only three field goals the entire night. It was the first time in Patrick Mahomes' tenure that the Chiefs were held to single digits, and the first time they lost by double digits. On the Ringer NFL show, Nora Princiati talked about what finally broke the wrong way for Kansas City. And to just back up for a second, so Elias Sports tweeted this out. Uh, the 2020 Chiefs were the first team in Super Bowl history to start two different tackles in the Super Bowl than they did in week yeah. one. So that's Remmers and Wiley. Uh, Austin Ryder, their center, I think is the only offensive lineman from last year's Super Bowl winning team playing in the same position, who was playing in the same position during this game. So they were as banged up as they possibly could have been. It's just, yeah, like to this point, nothing mattered. And then all of a sudden it did. And that's just it. Like that's, that's, that is what is fascinating about sports. Right. And that is what is fascinating. Actually. I think about the quarterback matchup. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes is a more talented player than Tom Brady. And that is still true, but it's just not always how it works out. And sometimes Things go from not mattering to mattering and it's a matter of degree or it's a matter of right place, right time, or it is some X factor thing that we get to try to figure out. Kansas City's offensive line had been battered all season. Back in week five, they lost guard Kaleche Osemele, former former Cyclone, by the way, just need to throw that in there. And then they lost. You you didn't even mention that the last team to beat Pat Mahomes by by double digits was the Iowa State Cyclones. That was mentioned on that Ringer show, too. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so the Chiefs offensive line lost key former Iowa Stater Kaleche Assembly in week five. They also lost tackle Mitchell Schwartz in week six. But the real blow was losing tackle Eric Fisher, who ruptured his Achilles tendon in the AFC championship game. Jeff, was was losing Fisher the straw that broke the camel's back for the Chiefs? Or would the Bucks' defensive front have managed to break through anyway? Probably a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. <laughs> I, I think um, we've seen this all year when you have a lot of these cluster injuries, when you have a lot of injuries on in one position group, it does actually sort of impact the team on the field, most notably probably being that when the Browns, who went on to win a playoff game, lost to the Jets when they had no wide receivers. Um, and their offensive line is, is while they didn't have, they had one of their starters or one of their sort of starters from the, the team that started the year, they obviously were on, you know, deep in the depth chart. Um, you know, when you start having to 
go to your third string guards and third string tackles. It's it's not good against this defense, but I think part of it's also that, you know, Todd Bowles, to his credit, just called an amazing game. I mean, and everyone everyone really showed up. Twelve different players put pressure on Pat Mahomes, which is crazy. I mean, they were getting contributions from everyone. Um, Shaq Barrett, Pierre Paul, Vita Vea, they all had amazing games. And just like the coverage scheme was great. I mean, they, they had the two safeties back. They had linebackers on Kelsey, which normally would be what you'd target. But those linebackers, you know, while they gave up a lot of receptions to Kelsey, they limited the damage and, you know, took away a lot of the underneath passes, which were really the only thing on offer because uh, Tampa had done such a great job of sort of decidedly limiting Tyreek Hill and limiting the sort of trademark KC deep ball and also Mahomes had no time so it really and they at the same time also which I thought was going to happen and I think part of this might have been you know Mahomes's you know hobbled foot like they they took away his running ability too so they really it was just an amazingly called game and and credit to Tampa Bay and Todd Bowles um the game plan they drew up and on the other side I don't think KC really drew up a game plan at all. Um, I think they weren't really prepared for what was coming. Um, that is sort of understandable when no team is really ever able to stop you. Like, why would you do something different? <laughs> but they, they didn't come with a game plan prepared for that defense and the, the, that amount of pressure that um, Pat Mahomes was facing. So I think that was a factor, too. It was really outcoached in this one. Our colleague, Josh Hermsmeyer, wrote a story um, in the, the week leading up to the Super Bowl about the offensive line and about how much time they had given Pat Mahomes all, all year. And even with the losses, they had, like, managed to, like, keep it together um, it, the, with the, the changing in the personnel and and given Mahomes so much more time than he had on Sunday like that it was really pretty amazing the difference i mean we're we're used to him scrambling and making kind of amazing plays happen week in and week out and he was still scrambling but the plays just like he was scrambling so much you know the those plays where he would like be running back 20 30 yards yeah. like they're usually more effective. I mean, part of it's yeah. the speed of Tampa, like Shaq Barrett. I mean, they were really, like, even in he, – he looked like he wasn't running back to, like, give his receivers time to to get open. He was running back because he was running for his life. Yeah. <laughs> it it kind of made me think of some of the, like, old Super Bowl highlights from somebody like Fran Tarkenton, uh, just sort of – like, he would play that style as part of his game, but – when you watch those highlights, you're like, there's no way anybody would play that way now. You know, that style has been phased out of football. So it was like weird to see Mahomes doing it. And I guess maybe like he also showed that there's a reason why it's been phased out of football or, you know, they try to avoid having that happen because, yeah, like he was making some pretty amazing throws that some of which bounced off of the helmets of his receivers, some of which bounced off the hands of his receivers, but also he was making them under like, just ridiculous amounts of duress it seemed like on practically every throw I think I saw a stat that he was pressured like it was the most attempts that any quarterback had ever been pressured on in a single Super Bowl in the history of the Super Bowl that's crazy and Tom Brady was only pressured I think on four throws all night it was like 29 pressures against Mahomes four against Brady that's that is wild you know it's surprising to me to see Patrick Mahomes having a 
bad game because Patrick Mahomes never has a bad game. Even against, you know, incredible defenses, we see him succeed time and again. We see those, those you know, those crazy throws he was making get, get caught, usually. Does did this game, Neil, change our opinion of him at all? Does it matter in how we think about Patrick Mahomes? I don't know. I mean, it definitely was jarring to see. So this was, just looking at our ELO quarterback metric, this was by far the worst game of his career, the worst start of his career. More than twice as bad, or roughly twice as bad as his next worst start, which I think tells you something. It was also only the ninth below average start in his whole career in 54 starts. I think that says something also about what you were uh, alluding to, Sarah, that he almost never has a below average game. This was like the king of all below average games um, uh, for for him. So, you know, I don't know that it changes what we think about him uh, in the sense of, I think he's still obviously the best quarterback in the league. Uh, I think that he's the quarterback that you would like to build around more than any other player in the league and maybe uh, in any other player in recent memory even. Uh, and I don't think that any of that changes. But I think it does take away, and, and uh, in Nora's take, uh, she alludes to this, it does take away that aura of like, not even just invincibility, but sort of like the ability to cover for anything else. It's sort of like there was this mentality. We fell victim to that. Uh, pretty much everyone fell victim to that, that nothing else really mattered as long as you have Patrick Mahomes, that he's sort of the fixer of of all other problems you can have on a team. And I think this sort of showed that that's not true. Even a quarterback as great as Mahomes, able to do as many things as Mahomes, can lose games and lose them decisively and look like he doesn't really even have much of a chance if everything else kind of falls apart around him. I, I mean, if you look at all the different players and coaches who bear responsibility for this loss, to me, Mahomes is like way down the list. I mean, he was doing everything he could in that situation. And honestly, he was not getting a lot of help. A lot of those like circus, you know, scrambles and crazy off balance, falling down throws. A lot of times those are just caught and we talk about what an amazing play is. And like we were seeing those get routinely dropped, you know, two went off Daryl Williams and I think it was Tyreek Hill had two just sort of bounce off their face masks. Also just the, I mean, the two pass interferences, which were both questionable at best. I think that neither pass, you know, the one to Tyron Matthew and then the one on the Mike Evans play, neither really seemed that catchable, but you know, I guess you can't really sort of plan for pass interference and when that's coming, but the penalties and then, you know, they had a punter who was punting the ball like 20 yards. Yeah. What was up with that? Well, and um, then... So there were a lot of things going wrong there, you know, like Mahomes, it really wasn't his fault. I felt bad for means. the punter on the, the, you know, he had a punt that was like beautiful, long, 50 yards, great. Um, and then it was called back with a penalty, and then he shanked it. Like, oh, I terrible. mean, come on. <laughs> that, was, also, that was a bummer. The the offsides on the field goal that gave him the ball. I mean, like, yeah, that was, it was bad, bad yeah. mistakes. Bad Why mistakes. Why do you ever line? Like, how are you? That, that I feel like, is just stop doing that, guys. How, and that happens often. It does. Like, it happens often <laughs> enough that you have to think, like, well, this is, seems so basic. Like, it, line it, up on the right side of the right. line of scrimmage, I please. Like, I feel like people line up offsides 
more often than anyone ever blocks a kick. Like, yes. yeah. the odds are not in your favor. Like, stop. Yes. <laughs> Move if back. It, if an offsides will give the other team a first down, let's not even try to block this one. Yeah. How about right. that? Not no, worth it. Just let it go. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's interesting to me the power of narrative because since. Mahomes has a Super Bowl under his belt from last year. We're not like, oh, he can't win in the big game. But I feel like we would be saying that if the people would be saying that, not us, obviously. Um, if if he hadn't won last year, if he hadn't gotten that that first Super Bowl, um, and since he has, and we had this like, oh yeah, he's amazing kind of kind of you know already written about him. It's not as much that like that kind of dumb narrative is getting skipped which is good but it is just interesting that you know i wonder now going back to our conversation about you know is is just one super bowl enough for a quarterback like drew Brees or aaron Rodgers? um if that's his only super bowl ever how will we think about this game and you know yeah well it and it uh, the one quarterback that stands out to me that did have that narrative for a long time and probably i think looked pretty similar in his super bowls to mahomes on sunday was john elway in those late 80s um uh super bowls where it was just like they got there and they didn't even really seem to have a chance and he was sort of running for his life and and um losing them in a row but this also showed like the limits to the belief that Mahomes can come back from any deficit right i mean that's the other thing that i think we all sort of believed in our heart of hearts was it doesn't even matter how slow of a start they get out to it doesn't matter how much they're down you know uh within reason going into the fourth quarter because somehow Mahomes will find a way to rally them back because of what we saw in last year's playoffs because of what we saw you know in the Super Bowl in particular and um he, they they went out really with uh, not with a bang but with a whimper it seemed like in this game i mean even i, I was watching that game and even i I was still thinking, you know, even when it was 31-9, like, okay, touchdown, stop, touchdown. Well, Tony Romo was doing the math uh, poorly, I might add, on the air, and he was like... quite uh, poorly. uh, Very openly entertaining, like, he did not want to be the one to uh, put the the stake in the heart of the Chiefs and then have it come back to haunt him. You could tell he was, like, very conscious about making any kind of statement that, like, they're done. Even though, like, in any other circumstance, we would say they're totally toast in this situation. Like, I guess maybe the the Patriots against the Falcons a couple of years ago, you might have said, you know, the Patriots have no chance, and then they stormed back. But that was the territory we were, like, verging into by the third quarter in this one. Yeah. I I, I had to think, too, that, I mean, the, the Chiefs, the Bucks played great. The Bucks, you know, the Bucks did that, what they needed to do to win that game to neutralize Mahomes. I did feel like the Chiefs were playing kind of flat all game. And I, it's hard to, you know, this was one of those times where like real life is so much more important than a football game, even when that football game is the Super Bowl. But I had to wonder about the effects of the accident that Andy Reid's son was involved in. You know, linebackers coach Britt Reid, he was in an accident that apparently he caused that uh, hurt a couple of little kids and in fact a five-year-old girl was critically hurt and is still hospitalized with a brain injury from that crash that happened on you know just before the team was leaving for tampa Britt reed didn't travel with the team and and he was also hospitalized and i just i wonder how much that kind of thing does affect 
a team. I'm always kind of skeptical just because it does feel like a narrative that we're sort of mapping onto things. Like if it had happened the earlier in the previous week and it sort of hung over their preparation and all of this for two weeks, maybe. The fact that it happened on uh, Thursday before the Super Bowl, it really wouldn't have affected their preparation. And I just don't, I mean, maybe I'm being like the you know, the downer uh, on, uh, you know, on the narrative party, but it does seem like most of the players probably weren't thinking about that. Well, I don't think it is the, I don't think it was really the narrative. In fact, I don't feel like maybe people aren't, well, I I don't know. I, I felt like for me, it was hard for me to enjoy that game, knowing that, knowing what had happened. And I wonder how players react to that or if they just go into you know, turn off everything else outside of the game and focus only on the game. It, it's hard to, I mean, there's really no way of knowing unless you're inside that, that locker room. I, I will say it did seem from the very beginning, from, you know, the first couple series that the Bucks were fired up and ready, had extra bounce in their step and looked completely ready and prepared. The Chiefs, as you said, just looked flat and they looked underprepared. And, um, you know, that could be hubris, you know, which probably comes when you're kind of don't face very much adversity in the regular season or in the playoffs. Um, or, or it could be, you know, other factors. There was also, there was a, there was kind of a, a funny tweet going around Sunday that the Super Bowl could have been an email considering the game was not quite the duel of goat quarterbacks that we were expecting. What did you guys think of the sort of pandemic-adjusted Super Bowl pageantry this year? Did the NFL do a, a good job, or was there stuff they they tried to pull off that that really should have just been an email? It's interesting, but you know, I I was fortunate enough to go to a bunch of these um, games, and when you're actually there, you realize, especially with the pageantry and the this the halftime show in particular, it's it's really all a television show. It's designed for television. Um, so I think we all know this is a bigger problem for the NFL is that the NFL is best to be watched on a big screen television in your living room, which causes other problems downstream, which is like uh, we're not selling out these games. We got blackouts and all that stuff. Um, but but it is true, I think, with the NFL as a sport more than anything. So to me, a lot of this sort of show of the Super Bowl felt very much in line with the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely took on, I think, a more somber feel in a lot of cases, you know, and they tried to sort of play up the angle with like the healthcare workers and honoring them. I thought it was kind of ridiculous and ironic to have the owner of the bucks without a mask on say i salute the healthcare workers <laughs> after um like scream it out you know uh so i don't know the, there was but a lot of cognitive maybe he's dissonance vaccinated. yeah oh maybe he's vaccinated yeah i'm uh, maybe. maybe brady's vaccinated by the way he was not very uh wearing a mask very much do we know <laughs> yeah we we, <laughs> we don't know uh, uh maybe you know maybe mahomes was vaccinated and he he got the second shot right before the game and he felt a little <laughs> sluggish no <laughs> my arm oh well my arm it's so sore um but yeah i think the that probably contributed to the you know that kind of jarring tonal whiplash between like the game itself and the the backdrop of the pandemic uh probably contributed to the the email like feel and i think also it just was like not a very exciting game yeah. especially if you're not into like 
the X's and O's of what Todd Bowles drew up on defense and, you know, what the, how they were able to stop the Chiefs. And we've gotten pretty spoiled, I think, with, with some pretty amazing games. Like, if you go back, I think probably ever since that Super Bowl, the first one with the Patriots and the Giants and the undefeated season and, you know, being uh, averted and all that, it's been pretty consistently great Super Bowls ever since then. Like, when I was growing up in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, the Super Bowl was a blowout almost every year like they didn't have email back then but they would have said you know the 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 bills cowboys super bowls were you know could have been written in an email i think probably it, it does it, the one it reminded me the most of the seahawks broncos and met life because that wasn't usually you know when it was a blowout it was the favorite it was the 85 bears destroying the patriots but but the seahawks broncos won was an upset. The Broncos were this offensive juggernaut from the AFC against the good defense from the NFC. And it was, you know, a blowout, but not the blowout anyone expected. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I still I still reserve the right to be disappointed by by this one, even yes. even in the face of history. <laughs> I'm still disappointed. You can always find something to be disappointed about in the Super Bowl. That's what makes this America. Right. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. All right. Let's take a quick break and we can tackle what this win means for Tom Brady. So let's turn to Tampa Bay. While the Bucks' defense made Patrick Mahomes look human, the Bucks' quarterback had the KC defense on the run all night. Tom Brady threw three touchdowns and no interceptions, completing 21 of 29 passes for 201 yards. He was voted the game's MVP, the fifth such honor for him. Brady has been a participant in half of the last 20 Super Bowls. He has played in 18% of all Super Bowls, period. How? How is that even possible? With seven rings, he has won more Super Bowls than any single NFL franchise. There are now 18 years between his first championship MVP win and his most recent one. Yes, that is a record in the NFL, in MLB, in the NBA, in the NHL, in the WNBA, and in the NWSL. On ESPN's Get Up, though, Dan Arvlosky argued that Brady's greatness isn't limited to just what he himself has done on the field. Uh, I just think that Tom, what we are witnessing with Tom Brady started 20 years ago. And he put being the greatest and championship at the very top. And he has made every single life decision under the umbrella of does it help him get there? And it's not for many. It's not for anyone but Tom. And we're watching it unfold, reaping the benefits of decision after decision after decision. And we look at greatness sometimes as an individual act. But think about what he just accomplished and the impact that he's had on. I mean, Jason Light and Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich and Todd Bowles and Gronk and Fournette and A.B. I mean, so many guys were better because they were around Tom Brady. Not only that they were Super Bowl champions, but they will be better impactful players in the NFL just because they spent time with Tom. And so his greatness isn't measured just by rings. It's about his impact on everybody else. And I think we're watching that play out. 
Neil, how much credit does Brady deserve for this Super Bowl win in particular and for Tampa's Super Bowl winning team more generally? Uh, I mean, I think that it's always kind of easy to give the quarterback maybe some undue credit. We we like to give quarterbacks credit for things. I do kind of feel what uh, I agree with what he's saying in the sense that he was the reason why some of those guys came like Gronk came out of retirement to play with Brady, you know, so he, he played a role in the team that they assembled. I, you know, I don't, I can't speak to the effect of his leadership and preparation. That feels to me like it's a little bit of an overreach, but also what may, what has made Brady amazing is obviously he just doesn't seem to age. And he basically guarantees that you have, the uh, one of the best passing offenses in football, aside from the Patriots last year. But we, uh, given what we know about that team after he left, I think we can probably give Brady the benefit of the doubt there. But basically, I mean, he his presence alone is uh, able to elevate you near the top of the list year and year in and year out in passing offense, which we know is the, the most correlated statistic or category of the game toward winning championships uh, and and really more than ever with each passing year. This was the most pass happy year in uh, NFL history. So I think that that's like the big advantage Brady has brought and the fact that uh, I think it was in that Ringer podcast that we did the take from, they, they made a great point that Brady took a lot of the risk out of Bruce Arians offense. So, you know, you had uh, Jameis Winston last year you know, really explosive, great passer when he's on and really disastrous when he's off. And he will kind of have those bad games just as often as the great games. Brady took sort of raised the the floor and took away all of those uh, disastrous performances for the most part. I mean, he did have three picks in one half in the NFC title game. But for the most part, he was able to sort of give you most of the reward of that offense, uh, if not more than they had last year, and take away a lot of the risk. And that's been also another one of his MOs over the course of his whole career is I believe he's the all-time leader, like tied for the all-time lead or at worst, you know, second in uh, interception percentage uh, among all quarterbacks ever. So it's sort of this ability to lead a really high powered um uh, passing attack while also not putting your defense in a bad position by turning the ball over that's like the secret sauce to Brady's success and doing it better at age 43 than he did at 23 yeah I mean that is really insane if you think about it yeah you know what when you you brought up the three picks that he had in the second half against the Packers I was thinking about that too about how like the headline there Brady throws three picks is like those picks were the best kind of interceptions to throw. Yeah. They were long. They were essentially punts, right? And so they didn't hurt the team at all. So even when he makes a mistake, it's still like a pretty smart mistake, which is so annoying. <laughs> when you're facing that team, it's so annoying. When he's on your you team, want, it's great. You right? want embarrassing, <laughs> unforgivable mistakes that lead to pick sixes. Well, I mean... You know, yes. <laughs> I don't you want that from it. my quarterback. I would like that from an opposing quarterback and, you know, particularly Tom Brady. And that's what we've seen. I mean, that's another great point about, um, especially in the Patriots years, maybe a little bit less with this Bucks team. But I think the, the like, net mistakes uh, that you get, give the other team versus the mistakes that you let them make is so off the charts for Brady and, and his teams over the years. You go up against Brady, you're going up against a guy that doesn't 
doesn't make mistakes. So the majority of the mistakes that are made in the game are going to be your mistakes. And that kind of automatically gives uh, gives Brady's team an advantage. Yeah, I think, you know, we can't we want to separate Belichick and Brady and, and the the do we ever t- uh, this week? For sure. <laughs> and and, you know, I think that's that this is that the argument you hear a lot well like i guess i guess it was brady all those those uh super bowl wins for the patriots but i i also see like belichick's discipline you know that the belichick discipline that he brings to the team he brought to brady too and brady has that in the way he plays i think you can't really probably ever ever separate them which is like kind of cool right i mean it's interesting anyway i don't know this win won't shut down the who is the goat debates because those will just never ever stop ever but Jeff, does this win change how we think about Brady's goat status? I, I mean, maybe for some, it didn't. Uh, like I said before, it, I, I did not need to be changed prior to this game. I've always said, like seven Super Bowls, it's ridiculous. Five MVPs. I mean, it's ludicrous. I mean, we talk about. I honestly feel like it's one of those records. Like, I don't think, you know, people talk about what is it like Nolan Ryan's number of no hitters or these records that are never going to be broken. And to me, this I'd be hard pressed to imagine like anyone topping this, at least in my lifetime, Um, because it's just a ridiculous achievement. Now, I do think like his legacy, you know, we're kind of bringing up a good point. He's kind of been caught if you look at his career overall in this kind of in-between land where he wasn't really, you know, a Terry Bradshaw kind of game manager on a team that was known for his defense. But he also, for most of his career, wasn't these, you know, greatest show on turf, Kurt Warner or Mahomes and the Chiefs or even Rodgers on some of these Packers teams with this, like, unstoppable juggernaut offense. The one exception, ironically, would be that 2007 team that, lost the Super Bowl to the Giants that that was the with the Randy Moss um and that offense was was really you know at that level of some of these other offenses if not better um but it it's kind of I think it does sort of change his legacy because while you know his longevity is has made him pile up in all the stats he hasn't been on these you know premier offensive teams for for the most part I mean but again not like bad offenses um, just solid, well-rounded teams. Um, but this is all moot to me. I mean, I, I think I, I can't imagine we're still having goat debates. I, I mean, I think it, and it and it speaks to his success that we don't really like we don't think about that very often because he's just so he's good all the time and he's good in whatever situation he he's in. But he has his career has changed over over time. Um, it's just stayed good <laughs> except for the last year with the Patriots and so I think that's that that is hidden in there a little bit I just do want to say too about the goat thing like the arguments on Twitter which I know I know stop reading arguments on Twitter um we're like oh well you know who is he actually the goat I mean Serena Williams is is actually the goat or whatever like Let's not do that. Can we not compare athletes? No cross sport. Goats. No, we can't do that. Like you just the goat of goats. Like it's a completely different thing. Team sports versus individual sports. Like calling Brady the goat of the NFL, the goat of football, does not take away from other goats. Again, I'm using greatest <laughs> as a as a, maybe not the the single superlative that it is meant to be, but I think that's okay. Like. 
let's not do that. Let's not have that argument about, you know, well, what about Simone Biles? Because she's the GOAT. She can be the GOAT. She's not the GOAT of football. Tom Brady is not the GOAT of gymnastics. I think we can all agree with that. Although yes. we'd like to see them yes. uh, them swap places. I, I think that'd be pretty funny. I find that amazing. I mean, hey, Drew Brees is a short quarterback. Let's have Yeah, a exactly. Season. Russell Wilson. You know, I think we could see Simone run around. Uh, maybe de- some designed rollouts so she doesn't have to throw over the offensive I line. I mean, think of her flipping over tacklers. Like, don't you want to oh see that? Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, in the past, you've come up with a fun set of criteria for how Super Bowl MVPs get picked. Can you talk through that and and talk about like why Brady was kind of the automatic choice for this year? What what would have happened needed to happen for a different player to win it? Basically, the NFL, the Super Bowl MVP, they always want to give it to the quarterback. It always will go to the quarterback unless you know the quarterback plays pretty bad on the winning team or just not great. And then occasionally you'll see it go to someone else. Like for instance, you know, Brady lost the MVP to Julian Edelman a couple years ago against the Rams because he didn't throw a touchdown and his numbers were kind of underwhelming. Um, he had one interception, no touchdowns. Um, if you hit that three touchdown mark, you're probably going to win it. And even if you don't, the quarterback can still win it because we've seen some of these kind of career Super Bowl MVP uh, coronations, for instance, Drew Brees. Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. Drew Brees wins MVP. Didn't have an amazing game in that Super Bowl. He did have two touchdowns. Peyton Manning, even more drastic case against the Bears, wins MVP. But he really only had, like, you know, one touchdown, one interception, kind of underwhelming numbers. Um, and then you'll have cases where the quarterback will kind of have a lot of mistakes, and then they'll to the point where they kind of have to give it to a receiver. Uh, Santonio Holmes obviously had that dramatic catch when he won, but Roethlisberger had a sort of uneven game in that. And then the other one, and this almost came into play, and I think if Brady maybe had gotten to the one, because, you know, again, I, I this isn't me. I, I, touchdowns just happen to be the bar that um, is determining this. I know it's often irrelevant if you have a lot of one-yard runs for touchdowns, but if that had happened... And it wasn't all Leonard Fournette, um, who maybe could have made a case. Then it did kind of shape up to be a game where you see a defensive player win, and we've seen this in the past. And a lot of these, a lot of these times that one team's been held under ten points, or ten points or fewer. You know, Von Miller winning. Granted, Peyton Manning didn't have a great game, but he forced two fumbles, so he wins. Ray Lewis winning in that game. Um, Trent Dilfer's numbers were so so. Uh, Malcolm Smith winning. It was Dilfer. It was a Dilfer esque performance. <laughs> but you have to have one defensive player really kind of stand out the way Von Miller did, the way Ray Lewis did, the way I guess Malcolm Smith did with the pick six. And the problem with the Bucks is that it was kind of being spread around. You know, Shaq Barrett, uh, Pierre Paul, Levante David, Devin White. They were all kind of. They were all playing great, but if one of those guys had stepped up and done a lot and Brady had maybe thrown one fewer touchdown and one interception, the calculus changes. These are the kind of things I'm thinking about in the fourth quarter of Super Bowls. I'm just running these permutations in my head trying to figure out who's going to win the MVP. Gronk wins one, catches one more touchdown. That's an interesting one that you could see a case for that. I think if there had been the option to give it to Todd Bowles, I think people would have gone for that. But yes, unfortunately, that, he could yes. not. 
And that happens often, I feel like, in um, uh, when there's a great defensive performance. It's like, can we give it to an ensemble of defenders? No, we can't. So we have to default it back to the to the quarterback or whatever. And that's been disappointing. And like the, the Giants went over the Patriots in 2007. People were saying it should have been like Strahan, uh, you know, at least, or the, the co-MVPs with all of the defensive line for the Giants or something. I think we should see co-MVPs more. But the quarterback will be the default. Unless the quarterback yes, is, it'll always is go Trent to the quarterback Dilfer. unless, unless the quarterback's Trent Dilfer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so- <laughs> but it went to Nick Foles. It'll go to an obscure quarterback if he plays great. Right. Right. Trent Dilfer could have had it. It was there for the taking. He should have caught a touchdown like Nick Foles. There did. you go. That was the key. Okay. Well, I think we can leave this here for now. We'll take a break and be back for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Okay, I'm going to toss out a little rabbit hole on golf here, which I know both of you are more well-versed on than I am. Uh, So I'll, I'll let you unpack what it means when I'm done with my spiel. But over the weekend... I was sort of vaguely following the Waste Management <laughs> Open, the Phoenix Open, uh, and it looked like... Who wasn't? A, yeah, I know. Uh, who among us Yeah, was not glued to that? It looked like a long drought might come to a close at this Phoenix Open uh, after Jordan Spieth shot a 10 under par 61, not quite in our, our 59 club rabbit hole, but uh, not far off from it either, in the third round on Saturday, which tied him with Xander Schauffele for the 54-hole lead looking ahead to Sunday, which, according to ESPN Stats and Info, was actually the first time Spieth was in the final group of any tournament on a Sunday since the 2018 British Open, which was 52 tournaments ago. Uh, and, of course, he also was looking at a drought of of 76 straight tournaments since he had won anything, just period. Uh, His last victory was at the 2017 British Open, which feels like it may as well have been 100 years ago. So did Jordan Spieth break his winless streak on Sunday and finally end the drought? No. Uh, (laughs) On Sunday, he started really slow. He's three over par through 11 holes, ended up uh, one over. He shot 72 to finish tied for fourth. And that was, it goes back on a trend of him not really uh, playing well when he's in contention on Sunday. So ever since he shot a final round 64 to finish third at the Masters in 2018, he's had 12 tournaments where he was in the top 10 going into the final round. And he hasn't broken 70 in any of those rounds, 12 straight chances, at least where he was conceivably in contention. And if he had shot lower, he would have had a shot at it. And instead he shot uh, 70 or over each time. And that's a big part of why he's now gone 77 straight tournaments without getting a win. Spieth is 27 years old. He has 11 career wins. He's won three majors. He's made over $41 million in career earnings on the PGA Tour. So it's a little hard to feel bad for him or to really even classify his career as bad or, you know, even average. I mean, it's a career that most players would kill for. But it's also true that Spieth's trajectory has really stalled out. I mean, this is a guy that finished fourth or better in every major of 2015 when he was 22 years old. He led the tour in money. He led the tour in scoring average that year and really seemed like he was on the verge of being the at, at, at worst the co-face of golf over the next decade with Rory McIlroy, who's within four years of Spieth's age. He had led the tour in earnings 
Games in 2012 and 2014. This was supposed to be a great rivalry, uh, the, the likes of which, you know, we, we had seen in golf history with Tiger and Phil or, uh, you know, Watson and Nicholas, all, all of these Palmer and Nicholas. Nicholas had a lot of rivals over the years, <laughs> but, but, but we were expecting to see something like that with these two young stars uh, that we thought would dominate the game. But neither of them has won a major since Spieth won his last major. And while Rory has at least gotten back on the winning track, he has five wins since 2018. Spieth hasn't, obviously. It's part of the drought. Uh, and he hasn't even cracked the top 30 in earnings in the last three years. And he's really trending in the wrong direction. He's 101st this season, even after finishing high on Sunday. And as he was sort of collapsing or, you know, he and Shoffley were not winning on Sunday, the win was picked up by our friend Brooks Kepka, who overcame a five-stroke deficit entering the day. That's a massive comeback. That's the biggest comeback of the past two years on the PGA Tour to come out with his first win of 2021. Now, Kepka himself hadn't won a tournament since 2019. That win on Sunday ended a 22-tournament drought of his own. But even so, he's won many of the majors that we probably expected Spieth or McElroy to win over the back half of the 2010s. He has four major wins since 2017, and he's the only guy to win multiple majors over that stretch. This was also only the fourth non-major that Kepka has won. He now has half of his wins are majors, half of them are non-majors. We've noted this tendency, I think, on the show in a rabbit hole before. But the good news for Kepka in trying to keep his career victory uh, stats weird is that he has a, a related trend going that he extended, which is that almost all of his wins have come in just a few tournaments. So this was Brooke his second Phoenix Open victory. So now six of his eight career wins on tour have come at just three different tournaments. He's won twice at the Phoenix Open, twice at the PGA Championship, and twice <laughs> at the U.S. Open. Obviously, the uh, Phoenix Open, the waste management, the, the most prestigious right, yeah. of those tournaments. Uh, but anyway, I was curious, what do you guys think about Spieth's drought? Is it fair to classify his career as a disappointment, or is that too harsh? And why is it that Kepka just seems to just suited to dominate at only a small handful of tournaments. Like, what is up with that? I mean, the Spieth drought is, is interesting. Like, so this weekend, you know, he, on, on Saturday, he was sinking all these long putts that did not seem super sustainable. Like it was like, it wasn't like, oh yeah, he's definitely going to win. Cause obviously he's going to keep making these like amazing, extremely long putts. Like, no. And then they weren't going in Sunday because they don't normally. And he was just kind of playing just kind of an average round. Um, but it was exciting to see him play well. I, I was. Yeah. I think everyone was rooting for him. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it it's an interesting case. I mean, golf's such a weird game. In both those cases, I think illustrate what a weird game it is and even Rory to a certain extent the fact that he hasn't won a major even though he's basically finishes in the top five or maybe top 10 every tournament um is strange in and of itself um with Spieth though I, it's just a it you know sometimes like when Tiger was struggling off the tee you know it's the one thing he's got to fix that part of its game and then he'll be back um but with Spieth it's like just been you know the off the tee is just and was in this tournament is just a disaster but he's also you know while he hit those long putts i mean his putting in general which was probably one of his the best aspects of his game is i think he's like still ranked like 90th in strokes game putting this year or something 
Not not, not good. great. No. It's kind of bad everywhere. Well, and maybe with, you know, he's he's with the success he's had and the and the majors he's won, that kind of pressure isn't necessarily on him like it is with a player who hasn't won a, a, a major. So, in if he could just like you know, figure out the 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 problems. It, the pressure to win isn't going to be quite as great, and that that's what makes me think that he'll be able to have that kind of second half of his career, um, just getting those 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 problems figured out. Although it but is I, sort of I funny, feel like, like he's under tremendous pressure. Like I, I mean, I, there was not a I was fully confident that he was going to blow that Sunday. I, mean, I think everyone was because he. I, I don't think he was, as you said, sir, it wasn't sustainable the way he was winning. It wasn't like he was locked in, you know, throughout. Um, I just meant that like the the pressure, I mean, the pressure to win is always so great with all of these guys. I don't even understand. Like, did you see the way that the stands were set up at in Phoenix? Like the way that I just feel like I'd get up to the tee and just be like, yeah, no, I'm just going to walk away. I would just, I would miss the ball so, by so much. It would be so embarrassing. I mean, the pressure is always great, but like the career pressure of winning a major, of, of fulfilling that promise. You know, he did that at such a young age, which is also difficult. It, it's a different kind of pressure, obviously, and one, one that's got to be on him. I think the way he'll win is not by like, going wire to wire like he won't win by having the lead going into Sunday he'll he'll win by hanging around and then having other people ahead of him falter and then he'll win and then he'll be back like that and that happens all the time I mean it happened with Kepka right but yeah the the thing about Spieth that like normally or it feels normal maybe you guys can correct me on this but like when a great player sort of starts to lose it Putting seems responsible for that. Like you'll have guys that are good ball strikers, but they just have bad putting and, and or bad short games, and it kind of limits their ability to win. What's interesting to me about Spieth's trajectory is that his like tee to green stats are awful. Uh, and, off, obviously, yeah, his his team. putting his putting is bad. Also, so that explains why his like overall stats have been pretty bad recently. But like, it's not just oh well. If he could only fix his putting, then he would be fine because he's hitting the ball well. It's like he's not actually really hitting the ball very well, which is a problem in a sport uh, <laughs> centered around hitting the ball it well. He can't hit a fairway. He can't. He's never literally never in. Not literally. I'm using literally wrong. He's seemingly never in a fairway. I mean, well, Jeff, yeah. I mean, half the time, uh, his his driving accuracy percentage was only 52 percent last year. This year, it's 47 percent. So you're kind of like is, more than half the time. You're right that he is not in the fairway. He two that ranks 236th. Yeah, I didn't even realize there were 235 I, golfers yeah, on tour. Gain off the tee, 219th. Um, that's not good. I mean, we go back to 2015. It was 15th. Excuse me. Uh, off the tee. Yeah. Strokes gain off the tee. 15th driving accuracy. Still not great, but it was still 62%, 63%. I mean, it's, it's not... sort of kind of amazing that he finished fourth. Like he's played so <laughs> yeah, no, it's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Like we should go. be giving him credit. Yeah, good job, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it up. All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. 
For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.